Please take out your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 as we talk about living for God's blessings. Living for God's blessings. 1 Peter chapter 4. San Francisco has its cable cars. Seattle has its Space Needle, but Longview, Washington has its Squirrel Bridge. This is called the Nutty Narrows Bridge. It spans Olympic Way. It's a national and local landmark there. The Nutty Narrows Bridge was built in 1963 by a local builder, the late Amos Peters. He wanted to give squirrels a safe way to cross a thoroughfare without getting flattened by cars. Before the bridge was built, the squirrels had to dodge traffic in and out and to make their way to the Park Plaza building where the office staff would daily put out nutty uh, things for them to be able to eat, to enjoy. But many times the workers watched many of the squirrels they were trying to feed get flattened by cars. So they decided to build this bridge. And it didn't take long for the squirrels to figure it out for themselves. They began helping the younger ones to get across the bridge as well. In addition to the Nunny Narrows Bridge, four additional bridges have been built. The most recent was May of 2015, and the sixth bridge is in the process of being completed. This safe squirrel highway reminds us that God has promised us a highway of holiness in Isaiah chapter 35 for all those who know him as Savior. It says, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it, but the redeemed shall walk there, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. God is our deliverer, and he will take us through whatever trial and tribulation and persecution we will face, much like how these folks figured a way to deliver and protect and provide a way for these squirrels to be safe. In, Psalm chapter, in Psalms chapter 23, verse 4, a verse that many of us know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those are great words of encouragement when we're going through times of grief, of loss, of trials, of tribulation, and persecution. And in our message for today, we're going to continue to talk about how we can know that as we grow through tough times, we're growing deeper in knowing God and allowing God to help us experience him in new and fresh ways that any other way we would not have discovered. Now, we may not think at first that uh, we, we gain and enjoy going through the difficult times and the suffering in our life, but when we look back in hindsight, as I have Many times in my life, I see how God's hand directed me and held my hand through those difficult times. And I know him in a richer and a deeper and a more intimate way. Why does God take Christians through suffering? Why do we have to go through that? Well, here's a couple things to think about. To build character in us as we pursue holiness to be made in the image of Christ. That's one of the main things is to, to make us more like Christ. It's also to increase our spiritual strength. Think about David when he went up against Goliath. He'd already killed a lion and a bear as a shepherd, and now he's ready to face the giant. He had learned through the process of steps that God was strengthening him, preparing him for what he may face in the days ahead. A third thing is to humble us, to humble us. That's one reason that God puts these difficulties in our life. It also is to drive us to prayer and a deeper dependency upon him. As we said before, when everything seems to be going right, we start to think, well, it must be about us instead of God. And sometimes he brings these difficulties in to steer us back to 
God and to go to him in prayer and be desperate, as we said in Psalm 42, to thirst after him. Another reason for suffering is for us to long for heaven, to long for a place we know we're not at home here in this world permanently, but we've got something far better. And then enrich our rewards in heaven. The more we endure, the more we go through these difficulties and persevere, he will provide enrichment and the rewards that we'll receive when we see him face to face. And then for those who give their life and martyrdom for their faith, they will reach the ultimate goal that when, they're, uh, when they breathe their last breath in martyrdom, their faith will become sight. They will breathe the air of heaven. They will see their Savior face to face, and they will have a sense that they've accomplished God's will in their life. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4 for our scripture reading, verse 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit of the way God does. And may he add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Peter is speaking to the scattered Jewish people and the Gentile believers who are suffering persecution for their faith. He shares three thoughts in the beginning of this chapter. The first one is, Live triumphantly over sin and death. First thing on your outline, live triumphantly over sin and death. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What's that saying? It means to put on the mind of Christ while you are suffering. While you're going through trials, while you're going through tribulations, while people at work may be uh, making fun of you, while the boss may not give you that promotion because you have different values than he does. Kids at school may mock you for what your values are if you're a teenager or a young person. Put on the mind of Christ while suffering. Notice it says, since therefore, it refers back to 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22, where we see the example of Christ suffering in the flesh and how we are to now respond with the same attitude that he had. This is hard because the first thing we want to do as human beings is to get out of the pain, to get out of the situation that's causing us discomfort, to get out of the place where people are mocking us or making fun of us or whatever it may be for what we believe. We see, you see, you and I, we have the sense of what normal should be like, what our comfort zone is, and we want to default to that any way possible. And God is giving us the thought process of how to think like Christ when suffering comes. Notice in verse 1, it says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. Keep in mind how Christ responded. That phrase, arm yourselves, is a Greek imperative, which means it's a command. 
Arm yourself with weapons. Make preparation for war. Put on as armor the thoughts of how Christ responded as he was treated unjustly. Remember, your outlook determines your outcomes. How we think, our thought processes lead us into how we respond. I think about Teddy Roosevelt, one of our former presidents. When he was a young boy, he had asthma, but he had a great mind, according to his dad, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. His dad said this, Theodore, you have the mind, but you have not the body. Without the help of the body, the mind cannot go as far as it should. I'm giving you the tools, but it is up to you to make your body. Those three words, make your body, became the motto of Theodore Roosevelt's life. It said that when he was in the White House, he installed a, a punching bag to go down and work out. But when he was young, as he responded to his dad saying, make my body, he committed to that and he began to regularly exercise. That exercise included boxing, wrestling, hiking, horseback riding. He took up tennis, eventually forming his infamous, infamous tennis cabinet. And I asked the question of myself and all of us, how willing and how far are we willing to go and stand for Christ in the face of persecution? Is there a line, is there a place that will say, I won't go past this line. I won't go this far. I will not continue to stand because it's too much to do. Jesus suffered unjustly on the cross and Paul suffered, according to Jesus, as Paul was on the road to Damascus. And he was trying to go there and he had orders to persecute the Christians and put them in jail and even execute them. He held the coats of those who executed Stephen, the first martyr. But on the road, you know, the, the light shone on him and Jesus called him and he called him not just to be one who would go to the Gentiles, but that he would suffer as he went to the Jews and the Gentiles to share the gospel. This is what Paul said about his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He says, I suffer, I pour myself out so that the gospel, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit can work in you. I'm willing to suffer. So if we lose our life for our faith in Christ, it says at the end of verse 1, that those people, or if it's us, we will cease from sin. That means to have permanent freedom from sin, that we'll no longer battle with our sinful nature. We won't have to face temptations from the world anymore. No longer can Satan and his demons entice us to do things that would lead us to go against God and his word and his will. We will enter into a period of eternal rest. That's why I love reading the book of Hebrews. It talks about that spiritual rest that we'll enjoy when we get to heaven. We often see in our culture when someone passes away on Twitter, these letters RIP with periods after the R, I, and P. It contains the same initial letters as the phrase rest in peace. And that originated from a Latin phrase meaning requiescant in pace, 
or may the deceased person rest in peace is the translation. The Latin phrase began appearing on Christian gravestones in the 8th century and was widespread on Christian grave markers by the 1700s. In this early use, rest in peace, or requiescat in pace, was a prayer or wish that the soul of the deceased would find eternal peace in heaven. Catholic burial services in particular still incorporate the original Latin RIP. The phrase rest in peace and the acronym RIP have been migrated into the secular use over the centuries, given Christianity's extensive influence on the secular Western culture. Think about that. We have the opportunity and look forward to our eternal rest to be ceasing from sin. Second of all, and to this point, we're going to persevere by living out God's will in our lives. Persevere by living out God's will in our lives. Look at verse 2 of 1 Peter 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The idea here at the beginning of this verse is as you wait for heaven, while you're still here on planet Earth, the word time there is a chronological frame of reference. Don't live like you did before you became a believer in Christ, he's saying. And he's about to describe some characteristics of that in a moment. He's saying, don't carry out your human passions, your lusts, and your feelings to the excess, but live in God's will for your life. Living in the will of God means that we are pursuing holiness to be more like Christ. It means we're obeying and following his commands. And I don't know if you found this out in your life. I was talking to someone this week, and I think it's true for most believers that the more committed you are to seeking after and pursuing holiness and really going after God working in your life, the more opposition you will face, the more difficulties that will come your way, the more things that want to distract you and take you away from your intentional focus upon God. And so you think about it, you try to eat in moderation, you have a plan, and then you go to a restaurant and everybody's buying dessert, what are you going to do? You know, do you go to the restaurant? Do you go in thinking you're going to find the healthy choice on the menu? Are you going to cut your food in half and box it before you eat? Or are you going to just do what everybody else does? It's also like avoiding places that lead, that led you to addictions in your life. It's changing your thought processes by memorizing scripture, by praying, by changing habits. The benefit of pursuing holiness is the sweet and growing deeper fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And when you do that, and when you set aside those distractions and you stay focused and you're intentional, you sense his hand of blessing and peace in your life more and more, and you feel good about pleasing him alone and not yourself and not just pleasing others. How do you find the will of God? Well, we don't have a lot of time to go in depth about that, but here's some, here's some ways that I think God will reveal his will individually for the details of your life if you will open yourself up to that. The most important and probably the primary source is God's word. This is the instruction manual that we have to live our lives. And so we can go and find the promises. We can find the commands. We can find the boundaries of how to have freedom in this life. The Holy Spirit, you know, when you pray about a decision, an important decision in your life, when you sense that peace that comes into your heart about the decision you made, then you believe you have the will of God. 
through prayer, bringing it to God, bringing it to him and saying repeatedly, God, what is your will? I'm at this fork in the road. What is it you want me to do? I think looking around at circumstances, God opens doors, God closes doors. And where he closes a door, he opens another one. So we have to look at the circumstances in our life. Godly counsel is so important. Get a cabinet of godly people that will speak into your life, that will hold you accountable. Then when you come to these major decisions or however big they may be and you need some wise counsel, those are the people you go to, to direct you and speak into your life. The important thing is that we need to obey what you know to do today and as you obey what you know to do today, God will lead you to the next step of finding his will for the future. But we have to be moving in order for God to lead us. The hardest part of enduring suffering when treated unjustly is that we want perfect justice in this lifetime. I don't know how many times I have three kids and when they were little, I don't know how many times we had this discussion, but Whenever one of them would get in trouble and the other one got punished and all these things, one of them would say, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And I would say to my kids, you're right. Life is not always going to be fair, even when you do the right thing. We have to understand that deeply as Christians, so we will not dwell on the injustices in our lives. I talked to people this week who are burdened down, who are guilt-ridden because they're not willing to let go of something that happened to them in an unjust manner. They're not willing to reconcile those things. And I see the burden in their eyes and their heart as they carry that with them. We have to remember that people are going to fail. Even the best Christians are going to fail at times because we're human and we're sinners. But Jesus is who you keep your eyes on. Remember who he is and that he is faithful. You serve Christ, even if at times the church or an institution may fail you. So the application is this, that we have to learn how to dance when the music is silenced. We have to continue to find joy and peace in God, even when the circumstances around us don't dictate that. And so we have to learn to dance when there isn't any music. And we go to God, and we know he's in control. And we know this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Second attitude that we need to arm ourselves with as we suffer persecution is to live by faith in God's grace in the present and in the future. Live by faith in God's grace in the present and the future. We can stand on the past grace that's occurred in our lives, but we need to continue to trust that that past grace that God has given to us will be given to us daily and then on into the future because he's a faithful God. He keeps his promises. In 1 Peter 4, 3, it says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We're to put off, put off the old way of living. Peter's saying here, hey, the time of serving sin is past. Or another way of saying is having passed your precious time away, avoid the illusion that the world satisfies and brings contentment that God and Christ cannot. Notice the word suffice in this verse means something that brings happiness, contentment, and satisfaction. Sin is fun for a season. Satan wraps sin up in beautifully uh, ornate 
presents and gifts, only to be open and be disappointed over time. We need to realize that sin is pleasurable, as it says in Hebrews 11, for a season. But then there's a payday. There's a price to be paid down the road. Peter is saying, don't follow the normal lifestyle of the secular world around you. Understand and have compassion for those people who just follow along the current or the stream of life. You see, the secular man or woman, we have to remind ourselves sometimes as believers, follow their feelings, hopefully some self-control with their consciences that God has given to them. They follow what their selfish desires want, and that's what is expected for someone who lives apart from Christ. But when we see the many horrific, evil things that people do who are apart from Christ in this world, we shouldn't be surprised. They're following the natural ways of a sinner left to his or her own devices, her own desires, his desires. So instead of being judgmental, we need to be compassionate. We need to understand in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that they're blinded to the gospel. It says, Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Remember that they are spiritually dead. They're not listening. They cannot hear what God is saying to them until the Holy Spirit speaks to them through the word of God and quickens their lives and opens their hearts to the gospel. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2 this way, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, talking about your spiritual life, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Until we came to Christ, the wrath of God, the anger of God because of our sinful behavior, not who we are, but our behavior was upon us. Peter is saying here in verse 3 to put off the old way of life. Here are the descriptions in that verse of that lifestyle. Sensuality, which means unbridled, unrestrained vice of all sorts. Romans 13, 13 says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. A couple weeks ago, I heard that pornography is now a $37 billion industry. $37 billion. And we don't, we don't want to go into the details of things, but even in virtual reality, all kinds of things are beginning to show up in there as well. The selfishness of adults taking advantage of innocent children and lobbying stronger and stronger for the legality of involvement at a younger age, taking away a child's innocence is something that we have to continue to push back against as Christians. And in our PVBC community group Facebook page, there's a great Breakpoint article that I placed in there talking about that. You can go there and read it. John Stone Street. Sensuality. Second one's passions or lust. Lust in itself can be good or bad, believe it or not. But we often think of it as a negative thing, but it's actually a neutral word. The word here means sinful passions that drive people to indulge themselves in wild sin. 
Drunkenness literally means wine bubbling up. The habitual overindulgence of alcohol or mind-altering drugs. Orgies would be wild parties. And if you look outside the Bible to Greek sources at the time the New Testament was written, this word was used to describe a band of drunken people who were loudly singing in the streets, staggering back and forth and creating a loud disturbance in the community. That's what they considered what an orgy was in that time. And drinking parties, parties with the sole purpose to get inebriated. Eugene Peterson paraphrases Isaiah chapter 5 from the message. This is a paraphrase, not a translation. He says, doomed to you who think you're so smart, who hold such a high opinion of yourselves. All you're good at is drinking. Champion boozers who collect trophies from drinking bouts and then line your pockets with bribes from the guilty while you violate the rights of the innocent. Lastly in this list is lawless idolatry. Lawless idolatry, and in some translations you'll see the word abominable idolatry. It's a word meaning illegal or debauched. Debauched being excessive indulgence. It was a illegal or debauched worship of false gods, often involving temple prostitutes, which were minor children. And uh, it was worship to these false gods like Dionysus or Bacchus, the god of wine. Peter admonishes us in verse 4 to put on, put on the new style of living, the contrast here. Look at verse 4, 1 Peter 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Because, the normal, because of the normal lifestyle of the world no longer fits with the Christian, the sudden change in lifestyle of a new believer causes people to be surprised, to think that it's strange. It's going to be a fad that you're going to grow out of at some point. They're going to be shocked. It doesn't even have to be a new believer. Just change jobs. I, I went for... Uh, working for a year in Walmart. And when I worked there and you go in the break room and people begin to ask you, why is it that you don't curse? They ask you about your values and they wonder where you get those values from and those opinions. They don't hear or know of some of those things. They're surprised. Notice the words there in verse four that we are not to join them. We're not to be a part of them. The picture of this phrase would be a large melee of people running forward towards sin. One commentator said a euphoric stampede of pleasure, and they're saying, come along, join us. We don't know why you're not coming with us. The flood of debauchery there in that verse pictures two rivers coming together and flooding over the riverbanks. Debauchery is when a person's mind is so corrupt, he can only think and act out doing evil things. He indulges and acts on his or her sinful pleasures, and this is absolutely contrary to what Christ followers should do. Take your Bible, if you would. Take it and look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, as Paul gives us the contrast, he tells us how we're supposed to approach the things of this world and how we're to put on the new, the new man, old things passing away, new things becoming new, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Ephesians 4, look at verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. We talked about searing the conscience. This is what it's talking about. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Right living, that's what righteousness is. Pursuing holiness, obeying God's commands. When we do that, we're putting on the new. And we do that because Romans 12:2 says that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we get into the word, as we memorize it, as we meditate on it, as we bring it up in our minds when we're faced with temptation and we deal with it, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it says because you won't join them in that verse, they will malign you. They will malign you. Malign's a strong word. It means to blaspheme, to defame someone's name and character, to speak evil of someone. Why do people not like being around people who live for Christ at times? Well, I think it brings conviction of sin in their lives. Not that we're perfect, but I can remember when I was working in retail and I was a manager and my assistant manager was, was not a believer and she would continually apologize for cursing and I never said anything to her. It was just something that she felt challenged with by being in the presence of other Christians that she should learn to control herself. Some people don't like someone to not be like them. They want everyone to be and enjoy the lifestyle that they have. Why is it, why is it that people don't want to be, other, be around other Christians? They feel they're restricted from doing sometimes what they want to do. It's interesting that the early Christians refused to participate in the amusements and a lot of the ceremonial things in the Roman Empire at that time. You see, they worshiped Caesar not only as the emperor, but they also worshiped him as God. And so many of their civic ceremonies and the things that they did were to pay homage and to worship him. And when Christians didn't do that, the Roman people in the Roman Empire didn't understand it. And that's why they faced so much persecution, because they were unwilling to participate. See, we need to live as countercultural as we can. Not just to be different, to be different, but to live for Christ and stick to our values and convictions so that we draw people to the light out of the world of darkness. We're to be removing more and more of this world's influence on us and stop feeding the passions of our flesh to the excess so that we can allow our righteousness to be on full display. A great verse in Psalm 37, 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We should be known for right living. We should also be known for carrying out fairness in our justice. And when we do that, God says, I'm going to reveal that. I'm going to make that a light to the world around us. So the application here is what steps are you taking to shed the old life and to put on the new? What steps are you taking to shed the old life and put on the new? And very quickly, the last attitude we need to arm ourselves with this morning is this. Live with a date with God in mind. 
Live with a date and God in mind. What do I mean by that? It says in 1 Peter 4, 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. First of all, those who are not believers, who persecute Christians, that pay back for their sin as they stand before God. You see, the unbeliever, the one who's reviling and maligning the Christ follower will be held accountable a lot of times in this life, but for certain in the life to come at death and at the final judgment. You and I have a date with God. He already knows what the day is, what the hour and the minute is. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it's appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Those who are not believers will be judged based on their sins because they didn't come to faith in Christ. And that will bring separation for God for all of eternity in a place called hell. It's a sobering thought. But again, we need to have compassion and understanding as we remind ourselves there. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, we would go the same way. There go we. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Think about that. It's a sobering thought. But for you and I, the pardon from judgment. The pardon from judgment. Look at 1 Peter 4, 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Notice he says for the contrast of what will happen to those who reject Christ. And now those who live for him. The believer will avoid the wrath of God's judgment for our sin because he or she has received the gospel that was preached. The gospel is the saving message of Christ giving us the hope for eternity. Preach means to announce or proclaim to save people. He says there in the verse that was preached, even to those who are dead. What does that mean? Even to those who died a physical death due to sin in his or her life? Or it could mean believers who were condemned to death by unbelievers. William Barclay, who's a Scottish pastor and a writer of a commentary, believed this verse taught that Christ preached the gospel to those who were dead, who didn't have an opportunity to hear the gospel in their lifetime, and they were given a second chance to receive Christ as Savior. I definitely don't agree with that. That's unbiblical. I think there's biblical support of how God and his sovereignty will reveal himself to those who may not have the same opportunity that you and I have. The context tells us that these were believers who knew Christ. They were judged and martyred based on the estimations and standards of unbelievers. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, it says, that when they get to heaven, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Those who believed in the gospel died and will live in the Holy Spirit for all of eternity with God in heaven according to the promises of God's word and his will in the believer's life. And the Holy Spirit's the hero of this passage. It says the spirit of God, he brings life and is life-giving. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms us through the power of the resurrection over sin. Romans 8, Paul said, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Our last application is this, how committed are you to the heavenly vision? How committed? Can you see the long-term benefit of enduring suffering and trials and tribulations in this life? I know most of us do not suffer persecution just yet, but let me remind you that it's coming and that we need to have the mindset of Christ in advance. And that's why we're going through this series to prepare us and know how Christ would have us respond when persecution comes. It is certain to happen. We need to have this understanding so we can endure to the end. I promise you, I promise you as we go through the difficulties and the trials of this life, that heaven will be so worth it if we only wait. Here's our key thought as we close today. Can you run the Christian race in victory even if you can't see the finish line? As Moses endured the difficulties of being rejected by Pharaoh, it says in Hebrews 11, he followed him who was invisible. Can we endure to the end? Can we follow? As we think about that, I just remind you about the quote that Tertullian, the early church father, said, when we think about those who die for the faith, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's why China and places around the world that are so persecuted and attacked for their faith continue to grow exponentially because even in the midst of that persecution, Christians stand strong for their faith. Let's pray. I pray that this week as we close today that you'll take home those three questions to ponder and to think about and to ask ourselves, help us to arm ourselves to have these attitudes that we talked about today. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you that it's a double-edged sword, that it goes out and goes past the bones and marrows right to our very heart and challenges us and convicts us and encourages us and builds us up. And Lord, today, maybe we're not going through these persecutions that Peter's talking about, but Lord, help us to store these thoughts away, to realize that we're in a battle. We're, we're facing a tremendous onslaught that's about to come upon us as the world becomes more and more um, against Christianity and against believers. Help us, Lord, to understand and have the perspective of Christ as we do. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.